This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Paul Barclay, professor and head of the Department of History, as well as chair of Asian Studies at Lafayette College. Dr. Barclay is the author of Outcasts of Empire, Japan's Rule on Taiwan's Savage Border, 1874 to 1945, published by the University of California Press in 2017. Dr. Barclay, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, it's, it's good to be here. Today, your publications have focused on colonial Taiwan, and as important as Taiwan is in the history of the Japanese Empire, being Japan's first colony from 1895, it seems to take a somewhat smaller position in the historiography of Japanese imperialism. Is this one of the things you set out to fix in the book, or what were some of the other big issues or questions that you had in mind when putting the book together? I guess I want to begin with setting out the problem, and that is that we have a pretty rich historiography on the Japanese empire in Taiwan, but the Taiwan indigenous peoples appear as undifferentiated aborigines, and they're really only mentioned in passing. And you might ask why this is a problem, and it is a problem because Taiwan indigenous peoples were prominent in imperial times, which I consider 1868 to 1945. Whether you look at Japanese discourse, policymaking, or even the colonial political economy, Taiwan indigenous peoples are pretty essential to the story. Even if we were to look at history from a Tokyo-centric perspective, I can think of five really important junctures at which Taiwan indigenes erupt upon the regional and even the international stage. And a lot of you know that in the 1870s, there was the famous Mudan village incident, which touched off modern Japan's first foreign war. And in the 1890s and early 1900s, Japanese mass media educational materials made Taiwan indigenous peoples the face of Taiwan for citizens in the metropole. So who these people are became the, the quarry of this research. Third, there were the camphor wars, of 1896 to the early 1900s, and I will describe these in more detail later, but these were vital to the financing of the government general of Taiwan. And moving forward to the end of the Meiji period, there was a very concerted effort to disarm the Atayal and Truku peoples of central Taiwan, and the Japanese government spent 17 million yen to do this over an eight-year period which grabbed numerous headlines and it involved the movements of Navy, Army, Constabulary, and police. And that, that is probably the biggest episode. And then the coda to this is 1930, the famous Musha Rebellion. So taking these five well-known eruptions into the main narrative of Japanese imperial history, I, I tried to frame a book around this in order to put the peoples that are usually referred to as aborigines on the historical map. So if we go back to 1874, Meiji Japan's first foreign war, May, December of that year, 3,658 Japanese soldiers and workers were dispatched to Taiwan's southern Longchao Peninsula. Several villages were burned and 516 Japanese people died mostly of illness during this, what most people would call it a debacle and, and others might call it an adventure. 
And the important legacy of this 1874 expedition was that it provoked the Qing dynasty to intensify its governmental presence in Taiwan while it deposited a good bit of visual and literary discourse about Taiwan into Meiji mass media and official documents. And my second point, which I call the faces of Taiwan, is that between 1895 and 1919, the preponderance of imagery and literary writing about Taiwan foregrounded indigenous peoples, even though they were about 2% of the population, they graced geography textbooks, newspaper articles, adventure stories, postcards, and various forms of mass media. And even though at the time, in the Meiji period especially, even though Taiwan indigenous peoples were the face of Taiwan, they haven't been presented in a historical account as the main actors and, and people to be discussed. And it's interesting, and I made quite a bit of this in the book, that the pictures of these indigenous peoples that were in mass media, often anonymous, just as ethnic icons or avatars of savagery, these actually were fairly important people in the sweep of colonial history. Most of them were local leaders and their daughters who acted as intermediaries between the colonial state and indigenous society. And that's why they were in these photographs. Third, there are the camphor wars. And many people are aware that Taiwan served as an agricultural appendage to the metropolitan economy and that sugar and rice were the very important staples and commodities. But during the first decade, 1895 to 1905, of the Taiwan government general, the monopoly system was critical to funding the startup for colonialism. And camphor, which is a forest product, harvested, distilled, and turned into an export from which one could make celluloid, smokeless gunpowder, and, and even insect repellent, there was a world market for that, and the Japanese government sought to supply that monopoly by disarming and at times displacing indigenous peoples. And during these camphor wars, between 1898 and 1901, for example, the government side suffered about 500 fatalities annually in this resource war. So that would be point three, why this study needed to be done. Now, moving into the late Meiji and early Taisho period, we have the fifth government general, Sakuma Samata's campaigns against the indigenous peoples. And here, as I mentioned, 17 million yen, which is more than was spent on Jilong Harbor, colonial Taiwan's busiest port, was used to move guard lines, which was a kind of scorched earth policy, into the interior of Taiwan to disarm and concentrate populations so that this camphor could be harvested more efficiently. And between 1910 and 1914, six to 7,000 frontline troops were annually mobilized in this war. And then the last sort of signal event from a metropolitan perspective where the Taiwan indigenous peoples erupt onto the historical stage is the Musha Rebellion of October 27th, 1930, and on that day, 
134 Japanese men, women, and children were killed at a sports day at the Musha Elementary School, or an Undokai. And about 300 Sedik warriors, led by Monorudo, and Sedik is the ethnic nomenclature for a subset of Taiwan indigenous peoples, that rebellion of the Sedik people in 1930 has been monumentalized in statues and films and is kind of the most famous incident in colonial history of a rebellion in Taiwan. And after that rebellion, the governor general of Taiwan, Ishizuka Ezo, was removed. He took responsibility for both the intelligence failures that led to that, but he also had to take responsibility for the bungled system of governance that led to the rebellion. And so in some ways, the way I set this book up was as a prehistory of this Musha rebellion and trying to look at Japanese colonial rule in this central highland part of Taiwan as the subject of a book in its own right. You mentioned you were looking at some of the, what we might call pre-colonial ethnography of the indigenous inhabitants of Taiwan. And this brought to mind George Steinmetz's book, The Devil's Handwriting, where he's looking at the pre-colonial ethnographic discourse of the German colonies and looking at how that led to different colonial interactions. Do we see this happening in the case of Taiwan too? Are Japanese rulers learning from these pre-colonial discourse and is this shaping their views of savagery and civilization as part of Japanese colonial rule? Yes, it is. And, and sometimes in a sort of oppositional or negative way. So from a Japanese ethnographic perspective, Qing period descriptions of Taiwan indigenes lacked finesse, they lacked specificity, and they lacked a kind of scientific rigor that would have come with, with different categories. So one answer to that question would be that the Japanese positioned themselves vis-a-vis -vis the Qing in asserting that their written and graphic descriptions of indigenous peoples were more, shall we say, up-to-date and, and up-to-world standards. And there was also a pretty important faction within the Japanese ruling apparatus that believed that the Qing had neglected indigenous peoples while they also treated them less than humanely as beasts. And at first, the Japanese regime set out to improve upon that record until they didn't. And, that, and that's because the money became critical and they ended up repeating a lot of the same mistakes they originally criticized. When we think of Japanese colonialism, one of the terms that comes to mind is the civilizing mission. Is that maybe a paradigm that we should rethink? So the civilizing mission, as it's understood in the literature of Western colonialism in Asia and Africa, would have to be modified if, if one were thinking about Taiwan or Korea, because emissaries of colonialism are working in the Sinosphere here with people that are literate in the Chinese canon and, and many of the arts that go along with it on one hand. So if, if they don't really need to be civilized per se, perhaps they need to be enlightened or perhaps they need to be 
transformed or, or regulated in some way. And then when you get into rural Taiwan, you have the same problem that you have in rural Japan, is the people are unruly. So for me, I haven't found that as a, as a particularly productive paradigm to, to think about Taiwan in terms of what the government was trying to do. The government was interested in making a colony pay for itself and contribute to the metropole and to contribute to a geostrategic position. And that had a lot to do with disciplining a population and not civilizing it. And here, discipline, I would very much use in the technical Ukoldian sense in creating a population that would be regulated enough to pay for its own form of supervision. And uh, that that would have been the goal. So the civilizing discourse is there. It, it's contested. It's uneven. It's interesting. But I don't know if it's as important as the will to discipline. Counter to this idea of this indigenous savagery, in fact, as you write about, there's actually some very sophisticated, almost capitalistic enterprises. And in fact, looking particularly at indigenous outsider trade of red dyed cloth, for example, you talk about how indigeneity and modernity co-produced each other. Can you describe what you mean by indigenous modernity in the Taiwanese context and then offer your thoughts on now, is this uh, indigenous modernity separate from or maybe in resistance to the settler colonial modernity that Japan was advancing? Well, that's a good question. And I think that in the final analysis, the indigenous modernity piece and the settler colonial piece reinforce each other. But the two variants also expose some tensions. So I'll tackle indigenous modernity briefly by saying that the way I cast it in this book, it is an ethos and it's an international discourse that circulates, that elevates in indigenous people as, as symbols of authenticity and as loci of creativity and unique bounded territorially derived sources of genius and spirit. And for people that were of that philosophical bent in colonial Taiwan, that recommended a policy of quarantine, isolation, and, and hands-off. And of course, that was at loggerheads with the timber industry and, and developers and people of that sort. And there weren't many Japanese settlers in the interior of Taiwan, but there were many Han Taiwanese would-be settlers. And, and they were often restricted because of that sort of ethos of preservation, isolation, and what one might call the reification of ethnic purity on the side of the indigenous modernity. And, and it's called indigenous modernity because this is a very recent kind of aesthetic that is also wrapped in the discourse of timelessness. On the other hand, settler colonialism was compatible with indigenous modernity because there was nothing in this indigenous modernity ethos that prevented the government from displacing Taiwan indigenous peoples and putting them on reservation-like settlements and surveilling, interfering with their livelihoods, exploiting them, and essentially expropriating most of their land. As was the case, if you think of Edward Curtis's photographs of people in the Pacific Northwest Islands, that didn't mean 
that the people who would hold these people up as emblems of fascination or authenticity, that aesthetic was not enough to preserve their livelihoods. And, and in fact, settler colonialism was able to, in, in many ways, enact itself in Taiwan, depending what you mean by a settler. I'm, I'm thinking that what we mean by settler colonialism is a regime of dispossession in a regime that treats indigenous peoples more as obstacles and, and fixtures on a landscape than they would human beings. And so there, there is something dehumanizing about holding someone up as a symbol of timelessness. And it, it is a dehumanizing move, even though it has much nostalgia and science and sophistication involved with it. And I think we might say another aspect of settler colonialism is this almost capitalistic exploitation of the land, right? We displace people so that we can go in and exploit the land. Talking about some of these capitalistic enterprises and trade and the role of capitalism in this story brings to mind the earlier historiographical debates about Japanese imperialism. And you know, was it a form of economic imperialism? Did it fit this Marxist-Leninist paradigm of imperialism as the highest form of capital, all these things? Do you see yourself participating in this debate or is capitalism in Taiwan playing a different role? Well, I'm not participating in this debate directly, but perhaps obliquely. I, I think it's very important to define what we mean by capitalism, and I treat that very seriously in this analysis. And I actually went to Michel Foucault for my definition of what capitalism is doing in contradistinction to Qing period or even Edo period forms of surplus expropriation. And so in, in the Taiwanese case, especially if we're thinking about the territorial politics of indigenous versus non-indigenous Taiwan, capitalism is, is very much an ethos and it's very much a set of institutions and it is a goal-oriented assemblage that puts a premium on continuous accumulation. And that continuous accumulation is created in a context of international competition. And so this is what Peter Deuce might have called the abacus and the sword. They're inseparable because of the perceived or the threat perception that if Meiji Japan can't bankroll industrialization, it's going to be the eaten instead of the eater, that the velocity and volume of camphor that is required to bankroll this regime cannot be obtained under older forms of exploitation. And what is needed and, and what is sought here is, is a horizontal integration of a political economy that lowers transaction costs and has the capacity for volume standardization and budget projecting. And so in that sense, borrowing from Weber and Foucault and, and thinking about what came before in a, in a rather disarticulated political economy of Taiwan, I think capitalism is an important concept and it's an important thing to think about. But to get Lenin's thesis to work, I, I think we need to have this kind of bottleneck in investment capacity that, that needs a place to go. And that, that just isn't the case in Japan in the late 1890s. 
And I was reminded of Goto Shinpei writing in English, in fact, talking about how successful some of the government-led industries were in Taiwan. You're talking about camphor, for example. There was also an opium monopoly. Is that correct? Yes, it is correct. And as a result, Taiwan was one of those rare colonies that was actually profitable for the metropole in some accounting. That's one of the reasons that Taiwan was always held up as the jewel of the empire, so to speak. We were talking before about some of the uh, indigenous capitalism that the inhabitants of Taiwan are undertaking. And much of it has to do with red cloth, I understand. Could you describe for us what this cloth is and, and how the trade works? Well, certainly indigenous peoples in Taiwan, whether it was wood carving or red cloth production, were certainly interested in markets. They were exchanging these commodities for other commodities and, and sometimes for money. I don't find that indigenous peoples, although they participated in commodity chains and were severely affected by the increased extent of capitalism, they themselves were not operating with this sort of, or what I would call a capitalist ethos of, of ceaseless accumulation for accumulation's sake. They did participate in markets by producing red cloth for museums and mostly for trading posts. And the idea here is, is that if you bring red cloth to the trading post or to the ethnologist that wants to purchase it or to the broker that wants to sell it at a souvenir stand for indigenous goods, you can get in return finished goods and metals so that this goes from being a local source of consumption that is involved in social reproduction to becoming a commodity sold for export while people begin to actually wear cotton manufactured Japanese cloth because it's so much easier to maintain and purchase. So that cloth becomes a, a node that one could organize a lot of data around from trading posts to museums to local forms of handicraft production and certain kinds of prestige goods for travelers and explorers to use to gain access to the interior. And, and the reason the red is important is that if we go back to the 1860s and 1870s and up into the 1890s, people that brought the red cloth, that's what people wanted. And for red cloth, one could get passage to the interior of Taiwan, and then local peoples would unravel that red cloth and then weave it into their own local designs and then re-export it again as a traditional good. And you're talking about some of the views of Taiwan from the metropole. What if we flip the script a little bit and say, what does the Japanese empire look like when we look at it from this perspective of Taiwan? Well, if, if we look at the Japanese empire from the perspective of Taiwan's interior and the places that were excluded from the realm of so-called normal administration, and, and the argument of the book is partly one of agents, both Taiwanese and Japanese, that manned, so to speak, or patrolled a border, but it's also a story of borders, boundaries, and polygons. And if we look at the empire 
from its most external or peripheral point, one of the things that we learn is that territory was brought in to the circulatory system of empire, whether it be the mobilization of people or capital or materials, very slowly, an acre at a time, especially at its extremities. And I think that sometimes this is overlooked if we take a 50-year look at the Japanese empire and think about its accretions and we think about its territorial reach. If you look at it from a pericentric point of view or from the periphery, you realize that there were real limits to state-making, especially in linguistically diverse or topographically challenging areas. And one of my arguments is, is that in some senses, the empire threw in the towel about 1915 and, and stopped trying to incorporate 50% of Taiwan into the empire because of how hard it was to turn external territory into so-called Naichi or, or anything that would be recognizably Japanese. And you would not see that from Tokyo. Or from Taipei. Probably not. Probably not. And we can talk about how different it looks from the perspective of Taiwan. But it's a great point about even the periphery of Taiwan, because and we think of these colonial capitals as almost being you know, attempts at recreations of the metropole, even in the colony. But it's not the case that Taipei sets the model for the rest of the colony either. Well, I think we have a, a more kind of networked modernity. I, I think Taipei, as is, is many recent people writing about it and making films about it, look at it as a sort of Shanghai of, of Taiwan. It had a record industry. It, it had nightclubs. It, it had its own kind of urban modernity. And yet, if you drive 30 kilometers into the interior of Taiwan, it's a very different kind of story. So I, I think this idea of looking at these bounded colonial possessions, the Korean Peninsula, Taiwan, Hokkaido, or Manchukuo, and, and thinking of them as units of analysis is um, really missing the point. There, there's different kinds of networks and, and different colonies within colonies. So this is a pericentric history of Taiwan, and that means that the protagonists and the agents are located on the outer extremity of imperial space, and they drive the narrative. And there are two sets of protagonists here. One, individuals, institutions, and practices who brokered relations between state and society on this so-called savage border, these are interpreters, chiefs, trading post operators, constables, and rural officials. And the other protagonist is the border itself, which becomes a boundary line and then becomes a polygon. And the spatial politics of bifurcated administration and the process of top-down ethnogenesis is its own dynamic, and that creates the indigenous territory under Japanese colonial rule. And it's not that the study argues that collectivities known as the Tagadaya, Atayal, Sedik, or Truku people were invented under Japanese colonial rule. This isn't an invention of tradition argument. These people already knew who they were. The argument is that these group names became politically salient as they were forged into an administrative district known as special administration, and there was a bureaucratically inscribed system of tribes, or buzoku, 
that was a completely novel historical formation. And so that is what is new about this. And what makes it so is the attempt to create an integrated political economy of Taiwan where the Qing could not and how the limits of that integrative effort ran up against traditions of local self-defense, topography, terrain, linguistic complexity, and the problem of making extraction from the highlands profitable. And it is hoped that there's a larger lesson in this book about the emergence of all of these specially administered zones in the world, indigenous reservations, and these irregular political formations that still exist that are both of nation states and yet outside of them as special administrative zones and as places since the 1980s and 90s have experienced indigenous renaissance. And, and I look for the origins of modern indigeneity then in the early 20th century and not in the post-United Nations dispensation, but in this earlier period when state spaces are supposed to become generative of a certain kind of profitability and integration. So that would be the bigger argument of the book is not only what is the history of indigenous peoples, but what is the history of indigeneity under Japanese colonial rule in Taiwan. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.